Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, and uh, this week, as always, we're kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. And on this week's program, we're still continuing with our series looking at characters in livestock, and in this particular instance, talking to them, because I have, as a very special guest this week, old friend and top veteran sheep breeder Lionel Organ. Lionel, I hope you don't mind me referring to you as a veteran. Welcome to the program. Well, I suppose that's where the category I belong to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Though not retired, no? You're just telling me you're still lambing. I don't know how to do that. That's, uh, I haven't found it. Uh, nobody's taught me how to do it, and so I, I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come on to your sheep in a minute, Lionel, but of course when I first knew you, you were in the, in the pig business in, in a big way, and uh, back in Cheltenham in those days in Southam. And when did you start in the pig business, Lionel? Well, actually, when I was a teenager, we bought a few just for fun. I have pedigree. Used to be a big breeder near us called Alexander and Angel, and they used to win everything. And for some strange reason, my father, who wasn't a pig lover, because we had a big dairy herd at the time, and um, he said, I, would you like some pigs? Uh, he said, uh, anyway, I, off we went and bought three pedigree sows. That would have been in the, probably the late 50s, I suppose, yes. Okay. And I left school in the mid-50s. Uh, they were large whites, and it just so I just fell in love with them, and away we went, and uh, things just grew and grew and grew and grew, and uh, so did all the work we put into it. And they became you know, a major component of our farming business. Yeah. Well, how many sows did you get get up to, uh, um, Lionel? Well, when I sold up, it wasn't uh, what we call a, a seller's market. We'd achieved just about all we we could achieve in the pig industry, but we got out in the early 90s when the bottom fell out of the industry. Mm-hmm. We were running nearly 200 sows then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, had, we had a tremendous trade for breeding stock, but... I was going to say they weren't killers, were they? You'd be selling breeding stock throughout the place and exporting, I'm sure. Yes, we used to export a lot. And we also um, used to have a big demand on the home market. Commercial market was strong. We used to sell about 350 boars a year and probably, I can't remember, well over 1,000 females because we had a multiplier who was Mm -hmm. breeding crossbreds mainly for the outdoor herds as well as as well as our nucleus, which we called ours at home. And uh-huh. It became, yeah, it was good business. It was doing well. It was paying well. And suddenly, bang, a bottom fell out, and that was the end of the industry. And not, not, uh, no, nobody came running to our aid, uh, no tears shed by government or anybody. The job just went on. People were going bust everywhere. Mm. I, I was left owing thousands of, from customers. There was one of these kindly breeders who uh, was fool enough to thought, well, I'll let you have some more, but you must pay me some time and this sort of thing. Yeah, you knew when that was happening, I got to learn that they were going bust. They were going down, yeah. yeah. And we were losing there, but there it is. It was sad. Very sad. The industry mm-hmm. was running at, must have been close to 60% self-sufficiency when it collapsed. Really? I don't suppose we're much more than 6% now. No. No, my grandfather was in pigs, as you probably know, he was in pigs. When I left school in the 70s, we had a 1,000 pigs on the farm, and I remember them getting to a stage when they were losing a pound a pig, and uh, he said, that's enough's enough, and they just all went at uh, pretty much the same well, time. But that would be before you. That would be probably they went in the middle it, 80s, I think. It would be, yeah, because we were killing about 100 a week of bacon, the, the ones that didn't come to come up to breeding standards. And um, 
they, they were they were losing us about a good twelve or fourteen pound a head mm. for we stuck that for long as we dare. You can't carry on. And of course, for our American listeners, if we put a little bit of substance around uh, this, the all the pig breeding business went off to Denmark, didn't it? And the, and the EU subsidies all went to, which they probably still get, I guess, in Denmark and Holland and, uh, and no subsidies, it, subsidies right. in the UK. You've got it all. Yeah, it's all, that, that's exactly what happened. And, mm. and, and I think we were sort of uh, quite happy the EU to let us uh, disappear and, and and keep the pig industry in in, in mainland and leave us to produce what uh, suited our climate, uh, the sheep and beef. Yeah, that's right. And they, and they emphasised on that, didn't they? Put the money in the, the sheep and especially, and uh, everybody turned to be hill farmers instead when they're getting thirty pound for keeping <laughs> thirty pound a head for keeping the EU on the hill and nothing for keeping us out. And uh, it's I still- can uh, I can never ever get that over the stupidity of a system a, a subsidy system of paying on headage but i don't blame those that, that abused it and did living well out of it mind you yes. <laughs> i mean <laughs> it was the temptation was there i mean there were thousands, thousands of ewes were, were never bred from great tales of the running them around the mountain with the dog and then taking the guy in the house for a cup of tea and running the same flock round him again and counting them twice with all, the, all of those stories. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, when they were paying on you, Hedish, I, I, I know people who just kept thousands of views. They were yeah. putting yeah. them in everywhere they could. And yeah. uh, they were they just in brief from many of them. <laughs> <laughs> they were worth, they're worth two quid a piece and they're getting 30 quid a year for keeping them. I know it was, it was nonsense. Let's just go back to the pigs a, a little yeah. bit. Um, uh, yeah. Lionel, when I first met you, as I said, came across you anyway, you were showing at Smithfield and I was at Smithfield as well. And, um, that was a, it was a great place, wasn't it? And I think you had your, your run of triumph there, didn't you, down at Royal Smithfield Show in Oscar? Yeah, we used to go there and exhibit the, uh, met Lance Whitesall in those days and, um, we exhibited live and dead. The uh, you know the aim was hopefully we could try and win the live and the dead at the same event because uh-huh. it was my my belief that um, you know just winning a show shows uh, uh, you had to tie it in with carcass success as well to be able to uh, you know claim that you were good at your job. Mm. Um, you know, it was, and that's what we did successfully over so many years was uh, winning live and dead, and we did manage to achieve Smithfield. We won uh, the breed and interbreeds there on a, several occasions, and mm. and the carcass of either the pork or bacon or both um, over several occasions. And yeah, that was at Earl's Court. It was a major. Event up there then. But they don't get cops you'd win out of there in those days too, Lionel. You'd have a lot of fun too, as we all talk about on this oh, program. Man. The fun was, was incredible. So many, I made so many friends. You know, you you would be in the ring and you'd murder each other in the ring, and at night you'd go out on the town and <laughs> and you you were the best of friends, <laughs> whether yeah. you won at Peter or not. <laughs> yeah, interesting thing showing pigs, though, isn't it? I mean, they I know some of the pig breeders are mischievous, but pigs are a mischievous thing. They're clever, aren't they? But they're mischievous. They'll be running away as soon as they really think about it, can't they? Oh God, they they were tricky. Uh, we used to, of course, use the old apples at Smithfield, mm-hmm. an apple in each hand with a glove on, <laughs> with gloves on, <laughs> uh, for obvious reason. But um, no, actually, um, the Royal Show was the best we achieved with pigs. They they're aiming to win the live championship and the carcass, and they staged a a, a superb carcass competition for. I can't remember how many years, it might be six or eight years, maybe 
no more than six. I can't remember it's a long time ago, but the thing was, it was they they were asking for the best three pork carcasses for the in the pork competition and the best three bacon in the bacon, and that was that was suiting us because we, without boasting, we could get three good identical carcasses uh-huh. uh, to exhibit. Uh, and a lot of people, all the hybrid, a lot of hybrid companies used to exhibit carcasses there as well as mm. breeders. And uh, we won that uh, that carcass competition. Sometimes uh, the pork and the bacon. On more than one occasion, we won both. And uh, and, and most of the occasions of that competition was staged, we did win the bacon, best yeah. of three carcasses, or all the pork. Um, but the idea was to try and get it combined with the live in the ring, and we managed to do that as well. Yeah, in fact, I, mean, I, I got presented. I got presented to the Queen Mother, who was patron of the show in those days, and I got presented to her so many times that she recognised me, <laughs> <laughs> and she said, "Yes, you're the man from Cheltenham, aren't you? You live by Cheltenham Racecourse." I said, "Yes, ma'am, that's exactly where I live." As you remember, we chatted about it last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was brilliant in that, and the same in Smith. So she come along, and she would remember. She'd remember a lot of people I know, yeah. and and of course the, the the pigs showing them live and dead. We have this in the cattle side of it as well, where but the cattle are also groomed up and dressed up. That uh, very often there's there's a lot of show and hair and very little carcass, and that was very rare. You'd see would see them the same person win. The, well, there was a live and dead competition. I think Julian Hopwood would be as good as anybody in that in the cattle. But difficult thing to do in, in, in I suppose in the pigs there wasn't quite so much dressing on the live pigs. That's what I'm probably what I'm saying. Well, you just have to wash them off and put a bit of white wood flour on and then brush that off and they looked snowy white, beautiful. Um, but you, you know, you couldn't hide everything. Everything was on view because there wasn't any wool on them. No. <laughs> I do remember a counterpart of yours, probably in later life anyway, Cyril Miller in Ireland and Cyril um, helping him, oh, clip yeah. a, helping him clip a pig. I think at one of the shows there and t- taking the shears to fetch, fetch the hair off it because he didn't like it. I know the pig didn't like it. <laughs> mm. Oh, Cyril, yeah. Great show when he's still, he's still around. And, and like in the pig business as well, Lionel, there would have been a change during that. You said you went in in the fifties and came out in the nineties and you'd have seen almost the reverse of a pig carcass a pig naturally is a heavy front-ended creature isn't it and it was all about breeding the bigger and bigger back ends and i know a lot of science went into that but would they be genes that you would breed from or would you inbreed it's an interesting concept as to how you change the, the actually physically well, change the shape of the carcass over generations well so we had to turn the shape of the carcass around as you just pointed out they had to get the lighter depth through the heart and the and the the wedge shape like uh, and, and filling out to the great depth of the rear end but the mm. thing is um you say inbreed inbreeding well we we call it line breeding yeah well, sure enough <laughs> uh, <laughs> inbreeding inbreeding when it failed but uh, we used to do a lot of line breeding i used to select or i rarely bought a, an outside boar from uh, very rarely bought one in after I'd been developing the type of pig that the industry would move towards. Um, in fact, you know, without boasting, we did quite pioneer the type of pig of the future at an earlier, early enough date to you did, yeah, benefit, you did. benefit a lot from that. And that was winning the carcass competitions. Uh, these carcass competitions, it used to amaze me where, you know, you had to have a long pig without sacrificing uh, any any um, flesh for being long it because you were paid in the cast competition they give you 15 points on a scale based on a scale uh, and 15 points length for weight it, and they were okay. you know, it, it was a scale and you had to have those 15 points to win these cast competitions mm-hmm. as well as having a 
great big eye muscle, shallow forehand, big eye muscle, as deep as you could get it, uh, and a streaky, which was very thick and mainly uh, lean interlaced with, with streaks of fat, sure. and a great big eye muscle, I said, and this jam, jam, damn great big jiggy. Now, well, this is what we were aiming at, and uh, it did result in us keeping our own bloodlines and mm. doing close breeding. And it came, it does come if you're, because you, you know, you're not going to undo these things. If you're moving in that direction, you'll only select your best boars that are, are possessing that design that you're looking for. We had everything, everything was recorded and, uh, with, uh, initially with Pida and then it became MLC. Mm-hmm. Everything was recorded and everything was scanned. This was the, um, uh, back fats. Uh, I used to measure the back fats and the muscle. Long uh, before they maybe. did it in sheep, Lionel. Oh yes, it was. It was twenty years before, at least twenty odd years. Yeah, because everything about the pigs we used to sell for breeding, or they were fully evaluated. In the, uh, you know, they all the the depth of shoulder fat, loin fat, the area of eye muscle, which we never even we only get depth on a on a sheep measured. Mm-hmm. Um, that you you can get go to the CT scanner nowadays, but yeah, there was no that wasn't heard of then. But we had this scanning going, and that and in the, the pig based on weight fraise and everything, and uh, and, and various other items, uh, and all these measurements they took, uh, it was indexed, and uh, we used to sell on index, um, and all these it, it, quite different. If people come and buy the rams, they want to come and pick them personally. In those days when the pig industry, you know, some of my customers are buying five, six, eight, ten boards a month. They were big and they would, they were all bought over the phone on index. And I'm pleased to say we had a, a, a very, very reliable uh, reputation that they could buy safely on index without being disappointed with mm-hmm. what arrived, turned up on their, on their farm. We used to deliver all these animals. They never used to come to us very rarely. Right. And, uh, but we were a, a high health status uh, breeding unit, so we couldn't actually just traipse buyers around the, the, the unit. We had, but we, for those that insisted on coming to pick their own, we did have a, a display area where they could see them, uh, and uh, but they couldn't touch them. But you didn't have on-farm sales or anything like that. Then most of it was sold privately. No, no, the only sales we had it was all we had tremendous uh, on-farm sales, but not auction sales you know uh-huh. um farm gate sales then yeah. uh, but um we used to attend all the national pig breed association main events which we uh, pleased to say we we won most of them most of the time you were the top, <laughs> the top the top breeder i know i've sort of looked back into a little bit of research of this and you were the um, sort of number one breeder in in europe i would say certainly for large whites anyway and as you said with that technology at your fingertips back then well, it was a long time before it's time I know it sounds very boasty, but it was—it's all out there to be substantiated. Mm, um, I've—I've I've got it all here. I've actually the National Pig Association want me to write a book and do something, but I've never got around to it. I, but we've—we've we've got a lot of evidence here in photography, in photographs, and and write-ups. Anyway, the, but um, um, we we were exporting a tremendous lot of pigs, and and uh, a lot of these foreigners used to make for us. Straight, if they couldn't buy with us, they'd move elsewhere. But we we were drawing most of our, uh, the top breeders abroad used to never would miss us off their shopping list. And mm-hmm. 
We, we used to have a very good export demand. In fact, um, one of the interesting thing is, um, Andy, we, while we were selecting to try and breed this very, very lean, muscly pig, it was genetically really muscly, uh, we did uh, unfortunately walk into the, what they call the old uh, stress gene, did uh, raise its head, and which is inevitable. You're likely to introduce a stress gene, uh, and you're not aware of it until you get stress tests later. Okay. But, um, we, that was beginning to creep in, and uh, it's um, it's only found on the extreme muscle strange. Just, just clarify that to to us, um, Lionel. Stress? Are we talking stress within the meat or stress within the animal? Stress within the animal. Okay. I mean, you could tell that, that they'd go all red, and you knew if they'd gone. If you stress them, I'm talking about. Uh, if they were really high in the halothane, mm. the halothane gene, they call it, um, they could even die in your arms when you're tattooing them. Really? That was getting a bit scary. Mm-hmm. And I had an American come over from the Ohio State University to buy some balls. And he said, could, he, he requested, to, if to, could I select about eight or ten? He said, I only we need about five, maybe six. But could I take blood samples, take them back to Ohio and um, test them for the halothane stress gene? Because uh, he said, your, your pigs have got so much uh, muscle and meat on them that uh, you know, it would be difficult, uh, I would have thought, he said, to breed them without the risk of that gene raising its head somewhere. Wow. And so well, I knew I'd got it. <laughs> mm. it, was still, it was still in the lowest percentage, but it was, it was, it was around. And um, so I, I allowed him to do that. He took the samples back, and I, I think he selected eight or nine, but uh, um, he managed to keep about six of them, I think. There's about three reactors. And um, that was fair enough. It was a good order. And uh, But he came back to me. He said, would you like to get rid of the halothane gene from your, uh, rid it from your pig herd? I said, well, too true, I would. I said, as long as I don't lose all the muscling. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll test all your breeding herd free of charge. Uh-huh. He said, you just get your vet to come and take the samples and send them off to, to us over here, and we'll test the whole lot for you. That was an extremely interesting operation. Mm. And I think I, about 25% were reactors, and or maybe a few more, but it, it was under 30% anyway. But it was getting too many to mm-hmm. please me anyway. And um, so we did lose a... a we did lose a percentage of the extreme, because the ones that reacted were the most extreme mustard yeah. pigs, as it. Yeah. But that was great, and it cost me nothing <laughs> other than legitimate for my vet to come and do the job, and mm-hmm. they post decision package or something. And um, I thought it was a wonderful gesture, and um, I think I was one of the first breeders to compl- in the UK to treat, completely clean it out. Right. And uh, But there were people out there who were starting to pick up on the fact that I, I had the stress gene in the mm. herd. It wasn't all wonderful. Uh, Lionel Orgel winning all these car competitions sort of thing and that and, and live shows. Um, it, uh, and there was a bit of, uh, you know, the companies used to try their utmost to sort of put me down because uh, <laughs> I, did, I did decline offers from 
I was JSR what, tried to buy me out on right. and, and tried to bait me with offers and I refused. <laughs> it, with hindsight, I wish I hadn't refused, but it wasn't many, it wasn't many years after that that the, 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 the industry collapsed. Yeah, but JSR were big outfit, weren't they, big boys? And if I can just... Um, Major, we've got one chap that uh, um, you'll know him that's been on our podcast with, with regards to the Beltex sheep. It's a chap called Jürgen de Poit in Belgium, and he's doing a lot of experimentation with the double muscle gene in, in pigs, in the P-trained pigs. And is this, I mean, I've never heard this, is it, is it, an, is it antagonistic to, to this gene with all muscle pigs, or is that just something that's, that's now been ironed out altogether? I don't know. Well, I mean, we were breeding in the dark. We didn't know which were carrying it and which weren't. I mean, no, it's not all muscle pigs carry it, no. Yeah, okay. It's a matter of finding out which ones have got it, which was uh, so surprisingly good. Okay. Um, you know, to get get the opportunities to do it, because it was starting to worry us. Mm. And, mm. Um, and 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 the, it came along so simple, but I couldn't fully cash on it, cash in on it for long because, as I say, the industry collapsed, and <laughs> and I I sold to my multiplier. Uh, Mm-hmm. The whole, whole and, lot went one and you cleared the cleared the pigs out, and of course, by that time you're into what more people will know you for. Of course, was the Charolais sheep, and you went into those fairly early doors. I think when they came into the country, and we've had a podcast on the history of the Charolais before, and Jonathan Barber's involvement and what have you. But I mean, you you would you'd be one. Sazam would be one of the the first flocks on 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 the team sheet, wouldn't you? Yeah, we were quite early. Um, I think they've been going about ten years when we came in, but. You know, I mean, a breed doesn't sort of take off that quick. It didn't in those days. Like mm-hmm. there was always a doubters out there. So, but it gradually gained momentum as people realised the benefits and what it had to offer. But um, I came in, um, registered my first uh, chalets in 1986. Yes, okay. I, I started my clean flock in 1985. A year earlier. That's right. Okay. So the cleans, were, cleans were before those, and of course you became one of the hard men to beat in the Charolais ring again. That's again where we've crossed paths. Um, you, the Royal Share would be your stomping ground. You'd be, you'd be, everybody would quiver when they saw one of your sheep coming out in, in there. But also a bit like your pigs, I suppose your Charolais sheep were renowned to go on and breed, weren't they? And uh, you, know, you had some good sales into a lot of uh, a lot of top flocks. Yeah, a lot of people were surprised that I packed my bags and moved to Wales, actually, but. Um... I think it was the best thing I ever did for for my showers. I'd been going a good many years, you know, before I left. Mm. But I made major strides of improvement took place after I moved to Wales. Not not crazy Wales. It was just going to, uh, I was just sort of reaping the benefit of uh, my um, breeding uh, program that I've been time. going for years. And of course, um, you'd have a lot more grass. And again, for our listener doesn't realise that you moved from Cheltenham down into down near Carmarthen, I think. So it was a couple of hundred miles switch and, and a totally different countryside down there to where you were at before, I guess. Yeah, we always got grass here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I mean, Pembrokeshire even more so. And I think you, you don't know winter exists in West Pembrokeshire, but on the coast area, coastal areas. But we, we've got, uh, we've got a, gr- a a lot of grass we grow here. We don't suffer from droughts. Never had since I've been here. We suffer from too much rain occasionally. But um, no, I, I think it was a wonderful move I, I decided to do. And when I had, um, I could really concentrate on the Charolais. I kept the cleans at clean breeze at the same time. Um, but they were taking a more of a back seat when I was really t- making big strides in the Charolais. And uh, again, uh, you know, I more or less pursued the sort of chalet that I had in mind, and 
when I moved here, everybody told me, you won't sell those things down here. They're too nash. Nobody wants them. <laughs> you know, you, you'll have to sell them in England. <laughs> I was talking, and, uh, talking to a Texel breeder the other day who had been a pig breeder before he became a Texel breeder, and he said the pig breeding gave him such great grounding and the fact that everything was recorded as well, that just, all things naturally written down. And I guess you'd go down the same route with your Charolais, would you, where uh, recording was important? Oh, yes, I did record I record everything. Um I'm not sure that you can, uh, we, we found the same with pigs. You, you can't, uh, breed and select on index alone. It's only a tool mm-hmm. to guide you. Um, if you try going down the road where you just select purely on index and, and stick rigidly to that, you'll not produce what the market really wants at the end of the day because we have very few blind customers out there. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, well, I did have one, and he, he could see more of this feel of his hands uh, than most people could see with their eyes, but he used to come over from the Isle of Wight and buy boars. <laughs> but anyway, he's an amazing man. But nevertheless, um, it's, uh, no, it's a tool, all the recording. You, uh, you know, it, there are people that try and use it as a, the be-all and end-all and the only way for, to select, but they don't produce then what uh, your customer wants to look at. And I'm afraid you'll never change human nature he will, the customer will always want to be proud of what he buys and he puts out there for his neighbours to come and criticise. Well, just for yourself as well, you've got to go and look at the animals every day. You want something you want to look at, don't you? And, of course, the other tool that you would have at your disposal uh, back then and still is, of course, is the shoe ring. And uh, you'd you, you earn your spurs, as I said, at the Royal and, and uh, you'd be fearful man to beat there. And what sort of, did, did you win the Royal? What sort of successes did you get with your Charolais? I know you were always there or thereabouts. Well, Welsh, uh, we won interbreed champions there a few times. Okay. Um, and when I came here, I had already achieved one interbreed there um, with a, a Charlie UI bred. And she was also interbreed pairs and, and supreme breed champion in that for two years. And the, that would have been in the just upon the time we came here. I think the first cha- time she won there was before I moved, and the second time was after. But uh, maybe wrong with my memory it isn't as strong as it used to be but um, no I God I've got so many champions at the Royal Welsh over the years that was my target was to, to because it's it's more meaningful with sheep to win major shows like that was with a pig. You're being very modest, and again, to our listener, the Royal Welsh would probably be the biggest sheep show in the world by quite a bit, I would say, and uh, and to win that interbreed, we were fortunate enough to win the pairs interbreed, I think, in 1992 with a pair of blue domains, but <laughs> it is a big accolade to win that. You've got yeah. 70 breeds of sheep or something there, of one sort or another, as well as just as, as, as hundreds of breeds in, 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 in or sheep in your class. I mean, there'd be 200 charolais at the Welsh, wouldn't there? At one time, there would be anyway. Yes, uh, just let me be clear. All the years I've showed at the Royal Welsh, I never won the Supreme single. <laughs> I've won the Supreme pairs, or submitted one of the pair, but on several occasions, mm-hmm. both the pairs. On several occasions, I've won that. And on the group of three, could seem to achieve all those. And breed champions, uh, I won the um, Charlie breed championship on several occasions. And and the, and the clean, even some of the, sometimes in the same year, both breeds. But, Never achieved a single. Okay. 
Come on to your cleans in a minute, and, and we're going back to or sticking with the Charolais, should I say, you dispersed the flock initially, I think, in 2009. Was that an online, on farm sale, I think, wasn't it? And top price female went to Ingrams at Logie Derna, who were going to have been on this program, and I think they sold a lamb out of one of those for about 7,000. So uh, it was a pretty good start yeah. to your dispersal, but they, you didn't stop there, did it? No, there was actually... Um I'll tell you who came in. Peter Vaughan came and bought quite a lot of good stuff here as well. And he sold a ram out of, out of a U he bought now, sell for seven and a half grand, I think. Ingram's, yes, they bought, uh, <laughs> I won't tell you the whole story because it takes too long, but they did buy um, a U over the phone at my recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they rang up, said, couldn't make the sale. This is back in the early noughties. Mm-hmm. And, can't make the sale, but we'd like you to, can you recommend a couple of ewes? And they said, we don't want to pay too much, you know. <laughs> that doesn't it, sound like the Ingrams, I know. <laughs> yeah, and it was before they got to, to it, the great heights they've reached now. It may have helped them to get to those heights. But, um, yes, they said, I won't say what they wanted, what they prepared to pay, but anyway. Um, but I, I managed to I, I recommend a couple uh, that uh, they wanted them from the spring born ones so they, they thought the expensive ones would come from the December born flock and um, they said well mm, that one's only got a single in we really want to I said well it'll be a champion you know it's a it's a good you take my word for it mm-hmm. and uh, anyway they they did buy them and they didn't have to pay too much for them <laughs> and um, the one I was carrying the single uh, was uh, it went to the uh, premier sale and made 5,000 Five, top price. Yeah. And um, that was by Bob the Builder. She was in Lamb too. So it's a homebred ram, Bob the Builder. He was in, in his, he was also a breed champion at Royal Welsh in, in his day. And um, that, uh, Bob the Builder was probably one of the most famous rams we bred mm-hmm. because everybody was buying Bob the Builder stuff off me. But anyway, that went, that was the first Bob the Builder son to appear. Okay. It, I, I took a couple of Bob the Builders there, but they only made 3,000 odd. And, <laughs> and, but that, uh, yes, they got 5,000 at top price. I think it was, uh, it was a one everything is what it could as well. Good. Uh, in the, but it was, um, Interesting because they weren't hardly heard of themselves in the in those days, mm. and um, and you know and they didn't want to pay too much, you know. But they, it's, they they've now uh, they're riding very high. In, <laughs> certainly are <laughs> riding very high. You're right, as he said, with a bit of your breeding uh, underpinning them, that uh, you'd be proud of that. And he said you had a yeah, they bought semen off me as well mm-hmm. quite a bit. You had a and, second um, a second dispersal then, I think, in 2010. That'd probably be the game of lambs you hadn't sold the year before, I guess. And I think. We used to lamb twice, once with the AI and lambed in December, and the ones that didn't hold way, I went and lambed in the spring flock, wherever they were top naturally, and they were sold. Uh, they were they were the um, older ewes, more or less, and the younger ewes usually cons- mm-hmm. they take to AI better than the old-timers. Uh-huh. So they would be in lambing, mostly the younger ewes were going into December lambing AIs. Mm-hmm. And I think but, um, I'm right in thinking Esmore Evans took two or three of the top price lots out of that one. That'd probably be him just getting started. I did the last yeah. one, yeah, yeah. That's him. He, he paid over 4000 at that sale. Mm-hmm. And um, he took a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he was a good customer. Uh, we put him up for the night. was quite pleased to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Esmore doesn't throw his money about unless he thinks it's right, that's for sure. But uh... Well, he, 
he actually, um, yeah, he was gone back in again. He'd been in them years previous. That's actually. Right. I didn't even know, know, know him in those days, but mm. somebody somebody told him he should come to that cell, and he, he did. <laughs> Thank mm. goodness. He, he was a good person to have, and he, he's doing taking a, the breed pretty serious now. He's yeah. getting some big prices himself. Mm-hmm. But um, no, actually, uh, the when I came to Wales, the, we put up a big shed, and the intention was to have it designed as suitable to hold sales. This mm-hmm. was my long-term plan. I, um, I know I had a a lot of breeders said, "Oh, you mustn't sell them down here. You know, you know, waste of waste of money. You go to Cardiff and England, that." But anyway, I I ignored that and I went ahead. And these some of these sales, uh, I mean, we we had uh, we used to sell every other year. We'd sell over a hundred in lamb, sure and ewes, wow. include, including our show team. Mm-hmm. And in between years, we would top our own flock. Build them up, yeah. And uh, you can only do this. If your sheep are near the top of the job, if you know what I mean, yeah, you, you because you wouldn't be able to rely on the in between year to be necessarily good enough as uh, the, you know. But you've got you reach you've got to be sure you've reached a level where you're producing and predict you can predict to produce mm-hmm. as good a sheep next year as you did this year and so on. Okay, and I thought we were into that situation we could rely on the in between years to top our flock up. Mm-hmm. On those sales, um, we started having, and, and we, we did have some of them where they averaged uh, over a thousand apiece. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, that was um, a dream come true. Nice, nice, nice it, work it, if you it, can get it. Yeah, and, and no lambing that year as well, so you'd probably go and put your feet up or go on holiday, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, but that, um, no, uh, that was in every other year, yeah. you know, BNU sales, you might say. And mm-hmm. um, we did have a ram sale. Also, uh, we used to sell about somewhere around about 120 rams in an evening sale at the end of August. We ran that just to aim at the com- local commercial boys, mm-hmm. and whereas the female sale, which is every other year, was aimed at the pedigree people, yeah. and we used to get a lot of buyers from Scotland and Ireland, mm-hmm. and and some, uh, you know, even uh, we have actually exported to France, but um, Charlie Seaman, that was, uh-huh. but anyway. Uh, the um, yes, those sales were very successful, regardless of all the advice I, I ignored. Uh, <laughs> well, you've ignored um, a lot of advice, Lionel. It's not done you any harm. <laughs> well, there was a when I came here, the Chalet breed was very small. It was the lowest membership of all the eight, region, eight regions, and and after I'd been here and had these sales for about ten years, over a period of ten years or so, the, the Chalet sheep. Uh, membership was highest region in the country in the in the UK, and um, they must have attributed quite a bit of that to me because uh, the Shirley Society awarded me the the Terry Robinson Award for somebody they consider made a major contribution to the improving. Well done, well done. Know, of course, Terry Robinson again. Those don't know was a Irishman and a great breeder as well. And but uh, no, that's a su- superb award to win. And if we go on to the the cleans that you mentioned, I didn't realise you started them that long ago. And when we talk about these sales, would you that would that be just Charolais, or would you have cleans in those sales as well? No, just Charolais. Okay. I just sell a few clean clean rams in the um, on farm sale, but they were the lower end. That I didn't. Uh, otherwise, they went through society sales again. 
And, and as, as I said, you dispersed the Charolais in 2010, but here we are 12 years later and you've still got the clean, so you must think a lot of them. Um, Lionel, tell us a bit more about them. I think the clean is virtually uh, one of the most, in, in my lifetime, one of the most successful redevelopments that uh, took place in the sheep industry. It was a, a very, it was just some forward-thinking group of breeders uh, in the Clean Peninsula. I think Anglesey maybe as well, um, got together and they took um, a good many breeds uh, and they pulled them all, the breeding together and selected and culled and selected and culled over quite a lot of years. It didn't do it quickly. And eventually they got a standard type, which uh, seemed to be got itself into a situation where it was reliably established as a, a breed uh, without wandering in wrong directions. Or that. And uh, they released it onto the market and, I had a Welsh Shepherd at the time, and he brought, he got me to try some, and uh, I thought I'll, I'll keep them just to keep him happy. But I didn't think they had much future. They're very small, and they were over hyper prolific. And uh, you know, two things that you, you you well at that time of day, we were just talking about uh, raising the carcass weight to about forty kilos on the lambs and that sort of thing, and they didn't reach that. They were too small, you know. And if you fed them. To a lot of food to try and make them grow, they just put it on in fat. But but they had this wonderful mothering ability. They were amazing. It's anyway, I kept them going. I <laughs> and um, again, as I have said before, without being too boasty, um, you know, I, I did a hell of a lot of pioneer work on the clean breed to make them bigger mm-hmm. and and less prolific. Mm-hmm. And and that sounds a strange thing to try. You want to try and make a breed less prolific, but that was seriously needed in the clean breed. Well, you do, otherwise, you get to, if you try and get 200%, you end up with 100 bloody triplets, don't you? And they don't want those, so that's the problem. <laughs> well, it's certainly not. Anyway, no, I've always got too many now. I mean, the cleans now, when we scan them, they usually average around 200%. Mm. Um, I mean, we used to talk about 230 or 40%. Wow. ridiculous. It is a nightmare. And, and they're yeah, a hardy anyway. sheep for the hill. We've had um, Neil McGowan on this um on this program here, who's, who's a big Ling cattle breeder, but also, you know, the cleans is his, his bread and butter. I think he runs 800 of them, and they'll run to a hell of a height on a hill, and they'll lamb on their own, and I suppose, again, that comes down. You don't want too many, you want triplets out on the hill in the middle of March, snow, snow time. <laughs> no, they've, they've done a great deal of good work for the breed, and they're, they're good ambassadors for the breed, the, the McGowan's. Um, they even bought a tub off me a couple of years, three years ago now. I think. And yeah, they're get, getting the benefits. I hope <laughs> they are getting the benefits now. Mm-hmm. And how many cleans are you running now, uh, Lionel? Oh, not many. I've only lambed down 130 this year. Okay, but you're, um, if you don't mind me saying, I, I called you a veteran when we came on the show. But you're still in there in the lambing shed. You're doing them yourself. Did you say I think you were lambing a sheep at three o'clock this morning? So uh, you're still in hands on. Yeah, well, it happens to me. I happen to be the one that goes out nights uh, at the moment because I had a woman here used to work for me for years on the pigs uh, at Cheltenham, but she comes and does lambing for about two and a half weeks okay. at night. Uh-huh. And so I actually, and, I, and, and having uh, had a knee replacement in December, it's not really uh, strong enough to... <laughs> did did, uh, did the doctor by any there. chance tell you not to do any lambing this year? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've been advised on a few things which I do my best to uh, abide by. It's very difficult <laughs> when you see a sheep there needs help. And but yeah, I I I I don't get them down nowadays. I just stand them up and put a halter on. <laughs> oh, right. 
I, I have a woman actually who works for me a lot most of the time. And she she's um she loves sheep. She just lives sheep, and she came to me twenty one years ago, foot Matthew and it was, mm-hmm. and um, she wasn't particularly any good at the time, but. I've been very patient with her, and uh, and she's turned into a hell of a good girl, and I can leave her to do most things now. So it's don't you know I'm not doing it all myself now, but that you know she I, probably I tells you to keep out the road. I expect Lionel, like most of the women <laughs> yes, do. Yeah, well, that's, it. that's more or less. <laughs> that's probably situation. advice you won't take not either. I expect you've been a bit of a rebel over the years. And nice to see you've still got a bit of mischief about you, but uh, I can imagine that you've been banished from the shed there when she's taking charge. Yes, there. See, they, 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 it was a bit of. Um, uh, women were ruling at lambing time. I had the night lamber used to cross, uh, cross paths before she go home, and they used to sort me over quite a bit and say they didn't want me down there. They can manage, <laughs> but the brain's still there to do the all the breeding, planning, and all this. It's still we. Um, I'm trying to breed what I consider is a perfect clean, and and I so I can't give up yet because as long as the target's still there to aim at. Uh, we're getting close. We're getting to like them. We're very, very much so. And uh, we try and uh, breed, well, just breeding a clean. Uh, it's like everything else. So I don't want the biggest back end and all this sort of thing. We can do that easily if you cross them with Beltex or something. But uh, no, they must stay pure as we can keep them. Mm. Hopefully, you know, you're relying on other people's honesty. But um, and try and improve them by purely hard selection. And, well, uh, and, and again, would you be running a fairly close close flock on those, so using a lot of your own replacement tops? Um, well, strangely, yeah, I kept my best shirling last year, so we got quite a few lambs on the go by him. I bought uh, the champion ram from uh, Dylan Jones from Hunkers, and uh, it was by one of my rams that had been champion at, uh, <laughs> I bought it champion. champion of, I'm sniggering uh, because that's quite a common thing, isn't it, to buy your own breeding back in? <laughs> Well, yes, I, I've, still, I've got plenty of uh, aren't too closely related, and he's he's produced some very good lambs this year, good. and um, also uh, he, this is his first crop, and so is the shirling, obviously, and uh, and I've got an old ram here which is, just keeps turning out amazing clean sheep every year, and uh, and he he's doing me he's the cheapest ram I ever bought, the best ram I ever bought, and uh, a lot of his sons have have left me and gone into uh, some of the top flocks in the breed. Right. And where would your sales be? I know you obviously some online sales. Where's the main, again, for our uninitiated uh, listener here, of which a lot of them have taken, I've had comments to people saying, tell me more about these clean sheep because there's a lot of interest in the breed. Where would they go to buy those uh, these days, Lionel? Where's your main sale? Well, the clean breed is an envy accredited breed and all the sales have to be envy accredited. Mm. And it's a pure breed, and they are a victim of their own success in a great in a in a way because um, there's a lot of massive commercial clean flocks around, and there's tremendous demand for cleans. While well, a lot of these big commercial flocks were setting up, but well, they close the door and only bring in tups eventually, yeah. and they have, they keep you know some of them maybe a thousand ewes, they keep a couple of hundred nucleus of their best young ewes to breed the replacements to top up the the commercial section. They just go out for tubs. and uh, it's uh, that is the problem. You know, if you if you're selling mules, mm. uh, they're they're a crossbred, mm-hmm. and the you know, the commercial man has to keep going back to the source. But the, with the clean end. They they they're very popular for these people who like to close you know, like close flocks, mm-hmm. 
that's a great idea. And it's a credit to the clean, but it also the clean breed suffers for it. Limits your, <laughs> limits your female market, of course, yeah. It does, actually, but they're still selling very, very well and uh, probably um, they're still the highest uh, averaging females uh, out there, but the volume isn't uh, as big as it used to be because when we used to sell sort of four or 5,000 at Carlisle and, and Brithen and East Wales, um, uh, in a in the uh, female uh, in autumn sales, um, it was a lot of these people were buying these sheep to get into big commercial yeah. situations. Yeah, get started and then and then close it up. And, and are we saying Carlisle is one of your main sales? You didn't actually tell me where the, where the main sale is. Um, well, Rithin really is a society uh, recognised because it's the it's the actual it's a legacy of the old uh, Anglesey sale up at uh, Gerwin up in Anglesey. Uh, moved to Rithin to be. Mm-hmm eventually to make it more central for people because the breed was moving its base more or less they were uh the popularity was growing so fast in scotland and the north i was going to say there's a lot of interest in in the breed in scotland and northern ireland isn't it? and southern ireland i think as well no the oh yeah i'd sell a lot of a lot of sheep to ireland have done over the years recent years and uh and judge there and everything but they're um yeah they love it they love them over there yeah oh they are um they're a good workhorse and they say, as they, uh, the saying these days is they do exactly what it says on the tin. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think that and, that and the ling, and I can see when we go back to Neil McGowan, you can see why the two of those breeds are going hand in hand, and, and, yeah. and it's a, a, a low input the thing job. Is, you get some people, they look at things, say, oh, it's not back, not back in. All right, you just buy clean. You can put your terminal sire on. You'll have the, I mean, you can't get better, better at the, you know, your, your, your top grade carcasses and confirmation, uh, you know, e, E3L or e, and that sort of thing. That's, you can't better that and you'll get achieved just that mm-hmm. with you put your big, heavy back-ended terminal size on them. Mm-hmm. You'll get just what you want. You don't need the female to go there to do it. Uh, it'll be done with one cross. And once you achieve that, uh, the E grades, uh, you're, you, there's no grade above E, so why, <laughs> You know, you don't need them to beef up your female and, and spoil its mothering and, mm. and uh, natu- natural um, uh, ge- uh, genetic mothering ability. And you talk about a terminal yeah. sire. I'd imagine it crosses well with a Charolais too, and you must have done some of that over the years. Oh, yeah. Wonderful cross, yeah. Because the great thing about the Charolais, it, it won't win the tax competitions like the, a Beltex and that sort of thing. But, um, but in a... In the real world out there, it's uh, the loin is very important. The length of loin you produce uh, uh, from your charlet mm-hmm. uh, and you know, is is a um, far longer uh, loin than you produce from you know your big back-ended Baltics. I know you you like Baltics. No, I breed charlets. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, charlet man. Anyway, here in France, but, but uh, nothing pedigree, but we do breed them here. Yeah. The chalet, it grows like hell, mm. you know. I know it eats well. <laughs> it's got a good, it's got a good appetite, but it's, it, it puts a tremendous growth into them as well. And you get this. Now, yeah, let me go back to the carcass competition with the pigs. I, I did touch on the fact that one of the essential things was not only getting a high score for jigget and, and loin, uh, muscle and all that. Uh, uh, you needed the, um, length for weight marks. I did touch on this. And I meant one thing that disappointed me with a sheep carcass competition there's never been a length for weight scale in the in the i tried to 
it persuade the powers that be to incorporate it, mm. but it never they would never accept it. And so therefore, if you look at that, uh, along a carcass line, it's usually not the longest that wins it. But um, but you see, the longest is probably producing far more loin meat. Absolutely, form far more weight. I would say as well. We always yeah. used to talk about the extra rib, didn't you, in a shoe sheep, and that extra rib is going to produce you an extra three or four kilos. You see, length has been ignored in sheep cows competitions. I'm disappointed, uh, but it's never been there. And that, if there was a length for weight mark, years ago, as I'd been successful with the pigs in cows competitions, uh, I was invited by the Charolais Society to try an experiment, which I got involved in for a bit. I was to go and do some uh, breeding to try and win cows competitions with the Charolais, which were being outstripped by Texan in the early days then, and Bell Texan. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I did uh, agree to do this, and we bought, uh, they gave me a sort of an, an open check to go and buy one or two rams in France with, with extreme muscling. Perhaps were, wouldn't be looked at by the pedigree breeder, but uh, were they, possibly where they probably bred a bit close and it's not a very gigantic breed numerically over there and and that's what yeah. we did and i started producing some of these and i i won the odd cocks competition not us not a smithfield show type but uh smaller ones and uh, at, at county shows and but i realized and i said to the chalet people uh, that um this is not going anywhere there's no length for weight marks and until they incorporate some length of weight, we're going to have to, only way we're going to compete against Beltex and, and extreme muscle type carcasses is to inbreed and produce a short sheep that won't put on the weight gain that you get from the length and, uh, and, and power of the chalet. And I say, I think you're going to achieve nothing by winning those cash competitions if we did that. And the only way we're going to win is to produce a Beltex type mm -hmm. sheep because of that one. Exactly, a reinventing yeah, was already there. One right? item there is missing: length for weight on the uh, in the carcass oh. scoring system, and uh, it's still not there. Okay. And, and anyway, I dropped. I asked him. I said, "Do you mind? Uh, I don't want to go down this road. It's going to uh, if we win cash competitions. I say we achieved the wrong type of sheep for what we should. We're going to be losing mm -hmm. the all the other great benefits of the breed. And if we start shortening them, you won't get the weight gain." And the length of loin carc uh, carcass in, uh, in the amount of loin you produce. Lionel, that's very wise words from a man with a, a lot of years' experience in that business, more so than most. And uh, hopefully, some of the people in here will just take a bit of that on that on board. And and Lionel, a modest man as you are, as I said earlier, but uh, I think amongst your Welsh colleagues, there uh, one of them put you forward for for a top award. Uh, tell me a bit more about that. He approached me and asked me if I would I. Uh, accept an honour to become a fellow of the Royal Societies. But it is awarded to people regarded or recognised as having made major in improvements to the Welsh agriculture, whether well, not necessarily livestock, mm -hmm. but mainly is, um, to the Welsh agricultural. One asked me to, if I would accept the award if, uh, if I was considered you know, up to it. And that was because... I take a great pride in being a grass grower of quality, quality maize and all this. I'm not right. just to leave the, the old lays down a bin here for 100 years or something. Uh, 
I like the, I like sure. to get a response from my soil. Anyway, eventually I I was approached and uh, and I had two professors grilled me all day and they looked at my farm, they looked at my animals and put me through it all day and and uh, tested me on just about every bloody thing is possible. So I thought that when they went, I said to Jenny, I said, uh, "That's it, then I don't expect I'll hear another thing." <laughs> they put me through hell, and because um, I never went to any any university or college, <laughs> I was homegrown. Anyway, no. <laughs> um, but anyway, went all yeah. through the procedure, and I I got the award, and uh, and and that was when was that? Oh, two thousand and thirteen. I became a fellow of the Royal Society. Okay. Yeah. Letters after your name. Yes, um, I got them eventually. Didn't even get, go to university, but I got them. <laughs> Great to be recognised, as you said. You've done when you look back on it, and obviously you know that, but a lot of people maybe don't. Mm-hmm. That uh, you realise what you have contributed. And Lionel, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you this this last hour. Superb, and I'm glad to know that you're alive and well, and it's still raining in South Wales. And uh, <laughs> hopefully, we'll uh, we'll catch up with you at the the Royal Welsh Show. Uh, yeah, if, I'm if hoping you'll be to get around. there. Uh, I don't think I'll be exhibiting. I've been, they've been talking to me. They said, go on, you've got to go. Yours went, yours. You know, I said, uh, you know, you get to age. <laughs> I couldn't, sh- you see, in the last few years, I've had other people showing for me. Only just clean, I've shown, obviously. And, um, and we never, didn't quite win a championship this last year or two. But, cause I think I need to be uh, on the end of the halter. <laughs> I've just hired some young farmers to do it. You know? <laughs> They're good. They, they, they do it. With, uh, they love doing it. But um, I'll gladly give you a hand if you if you're stuck there. I'll be there with a few sheep as well. But if and also with your with your knee, if you slow down a little bit when you pass my pen line, I'll sit on the sit on the box and oh, we'll share it. I'm looking forward to that. I really am. And um, it is an amazing show. I've been I've been to shows in other parts of the world, but there's nothing like the Royal Welsh Show. I, well, I've judged the Charlotte breed twice and the Clean breed twice. I don't think. Too many beers have judged those twice, but it must have, uh, I must have done everything wrong. They wouldn't have invited me back. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel, we'll look forward to seeing you there. And, and thanks again for, your, for oh, taking thank your you, time. Andy. It's lovely to have a chat with you. And I just look forward to meeting you at the Royal Welsh. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to what I believe was a really enjoyable episode of Top Lines and Tales this week. As always, we're extremely thankful to Harbro for their sponsorship and Harbro are suppliers and manufacturers of livestock nutrition and nutritional solutions. And during these times of uncertainty and spiraling input costs, uh, why not give Harbro a quick call and, and maybe have a chat through and see how they can help you keep things under control. So thank you, Harbro. And if you want more information on Harbro, of course, you can find them on harbro.co.uk or on Facebook. And with regards to the Top Lines and Tales, please tune into our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and other documents to back up this episode and other episodes. 